Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today I'm talking to Misty, former Chief People Officer of KFC, where she managed 800,000 people globally. Yum Brands owns Pizza Hut, KFC and Taco Bell. With 50,000 restaurants today, Yum opens a restaurant every three hours, 365 days a year. Misty stayed at Yum for 12 years, seeing huge growth and building its world-famous recognition culture. Misty is one of the most culture and people-obsessed leaders I have ever met, and that's why I'm so excited that she joined the Gusta board earlier this year. In this episode, Misty will talk about how, as a 15-year-old, she convinced businesses to sponsor her student exchange to South America. And of course, we're talking about her incredible scaling journey. Oh, Misty, you have lived in London for some time, but where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Texas. I was actually born in Houston, but I grew up in the smallest county in Texas, Rockwall. And uh, we moved there when I was, I think I was 11, we moved there. So spent, you know, early, early years in Houston, but don't really remember that too much. Most of my formative years were in this small town outside of Dallas. And it's actually, it's the smallest county in Texas. And it's, I think, like the fifth or sixth wealthiest county. It's interesting. Um, it was very small and a lot of people with a lot of money and we didn't have any money. So in a lot of ways, it was a wonderful place to grow up because it was small. It definitely shaped me um, moving there at that age. And I'd come from a big school in Houston where there was a lot of diversity and a lot of socioeconomic diversity, a lot of racial diversity. And it was, it was definitely different. And how was your family like? Mm. So my parents divorced when I was eight months old, which my mother probably doesn't, I think she doesn't like me to say this, but I think that that was one of the biggest blessings in my life. I feel super fortunate that I've had two loving families. So they divorced when I was eight months old. They both remarried when I was five years old. Wow. And my mom and my stepdad are still married. And my mom and stepdad moved for my stepdad's job, moved from Houston to Dallas, like I said, when I was 11. And my dad picked up shortly after and moved from Houston up to Dallas as well. So we were always able to spend every other weekend uh, with him and time on the holidays. And it was just amazing looking back now because I had two very different households that I was raised in. They couldn't be 
more opposite. My mom and my stepdad were uh, very and are very strong Christians, very strict and conservative in their beliefs around how we were raised, but incredibly loving, um, just in the best sense of how you could imagine someone describing godly people, that's them. And then my dad is just the most amazing, creative, charismatic, entrepreneurial, open-minded, sort of free spirit, really believed that it was important for us to find our own way, develop our own beliefs, and for him to expose us to lots of different things. And so I just had these really contrasting experiences. And I feel like unconsciously I selected elements of both of those worlds to really shape me into who I was. And also, I mean, I think this is, I think probably true of a lot of kids who are in split families, but you develop a real adaptability because I had to learn how to operate to the rules of two different households and to be successful, you know, not to be overly philosophical about it, but I had to learn to be successful as a young child in two different environments with two different sets of rules and two different sets of freedoms which was amazing. And I, and I think that that has led to me having really strong EQ as well, you know, just very quickly read the environment and figure out what you need to do to adapt. Oh, yeah. Successful. So I just, I find that to be a huge, huge blessing. Really, really fascinating. And was your, your family into business in any way? Yeah, so um, my mom, the whole time I was growing up, when I was little, little, my mom worked for a corporation and sold, I think, mainframe computers and traveled a lot, which ironically, I hated. I absolutely hated. I wanted my mom to, all I wanted was my mom to be a fifth grade teacher and to be in school with me every day. And look at what I did when I grew up. I, <laughs> I didn't do that. Um, so she traveled a lot until we moved to Dallas. And then she got her license as a nail tech and opened a nail salon. I think she worked in a nail salon or a beauty salon for a while. And it was just up the road from where we lived. And then she bought that salon and ran that salon for years, I think during the time that I was in high school. And then later on, she got into missions work and she did global missions work all over the world, but predominantly around Africa, church planting and community building and that kind of thing. And then my stepdad is a defense attorney. So he's sort of entrepreneurial and independent in that way. And then my dad has is like full on entrepreneur. He's got multiple different businesses, but I think the heart and soul is he has sort of remodeling and refurbishment businesses, lots of property and works on property, has businesses in Dallas and Houston that do large scale property kind of redevelopment flipping kind of thing. And so for me, going into a corporate career was a bit foreign in my family and I think there's been a time or two when I've been asked the question, like when I worked for AT&T or when I worked for Yum, of like, what do all of those people do? Why does it take so many people <laughs> to do all the things, you know, coming from a sort of an entrepreneurial startup, independent family? So, yeah, that's what they did. And that was, you know, that was my environment growing up and, you know, certainly a lot of financial challenges, ups and downs in that you know, 
entrepreneurial kind of lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, but, but really beneficial for me, I think. And where did you study then? So I went to the University of Texas in Austin, Texas. Funny story. I didn't get accepted. I guess just to backtrack a little bit, you know, one of the things for me growing up in this small, small town, I just had this itch, this craving to get out, to travel, to go and see the world. And when I was 16 and I was still in high school, I moved to Paraguay in South America as an exchange student for six months and did that during my junior year of high school. Consequently, even though I did very well in high school, I missed some of the critical classes for, I graduated still, but I think there were some classes that would have definitely been important for my SAT performance. (laughs) So my SATs were quite poor. I had a lot of life experience, but (laughs) I think, I think my dad, when I got my SAT scores, I think he asked if I left ill partway through. (laughs) No, (laughs) I was there for the whole, whole thing. But anyway, um, despite having good grades and, and performing quite well in high school, my standardized test scores were very poor. And I didn't make the grades to get into UT. And I really was committed to going because the boy that I was in love with, who I met in seventh grade, pre-algebra, who's now my husband, was accepted and going to the University of Texas. And I wanted to be where he was. And I wanted to live in Austin. And so it was just a fascinating experience, I think, and very similar to a lot of experiences in my life where Receiving the rejection letter, I kind of found as interesting, but not particularly important. And I then started researching who I knew who was affiliated, associated with the University of Texas, got a connection to the Texas State Board of Education, wrote a letter, offered to come and make a presentation (laughs) to demonstrate why I was a suitable student for the University of Texas. Love it. Wow. Very happy to write to anyone else um, or speak to anyone else or get in my little car and pedal my way there to meet with anyone. But they needed to know that I needed to go to the university. And sure enough, I got a provisional acceptance after that. Wow. And I was there on a probationary basis and I got a 4.0 and, you know, I, I did very, very well in school. So university was interesting um, because I didn't get accepted. And it was not the first time. I think when I, when I decided I was going to move to South America as an exchange student, I think it was going to cost like $4,300 or something like that for me to do this program. And we didn't have the money for that. And I had always worked, but my jobs were paying for a car, paying for clothes, paying for things like that. So I didn't have that kind of savings. And so even for that experience, I researched in the smallest county in Texas, businesses that were in Rockwell, Texas, that had any affiliation with South America. And I went as a 15-year-old or 16, I guess I was 15 at the time, and pitched to them why it would be beneficial for them to sponsor me Wow. It's funny in, in hindsight. Why well, it be beneficial for them to sponsor me to move to South America? And then I committed to them that I would give presentations to their employees upon my return, which is hysterical <laughs> because why would they care? <laughs> but I did 
but I did. And I raised every penny for that, for that trip um, that way. And, you know, I think that's a, a little bit of a thread through a whole lot. So yeah, um, university, I went to the University of Texas. I studied broadcast journalism and communications. I believe that I was going to be a broadcast journalist. That was in my mind what was definitely going to happen. Got married my junior year of university, which I think surprised a lot of people, but we had been together since we were 12. So we felt wow. like we'd waited a long time at that point. Yeah. And it was fab. It was fab. I think that the semester we got married, we, we got married on spring break. And I think the, we took classes just on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So we had Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, we worked, but we worked and then we would go for picnics and go for walks and stuff like that. So yeah, that was my university experience. And because money was very tight for me, um, I, I took out loans, but I also took placement tests, which I don't know if they offer this everywhere, but I could pay $250 per course to try my luck at placing out of courses. And I placed out of 15 hours, mostly of Spanish, um, but also I think of some English or something, which turns out it was a whole semester. So I ended up finishing in three and a half years, which was good because I needed a job. <laughs> nice. Okay. And where, where did you go after university? What was your first job? My first job was as an, a paid intern for Metrocell Cellular in Dallas, Texas. Brian, my husband, got an internship with Arthur Anderson back in the day because mm -hmm. um, he was an accounting major. And so he got his internship in Dallas. So he was going to be coming from Austin to Dallas for six months to do his internship. I had already graduated uni and needed to do something. So I decided to come back to Dallas, which is where our family all was in the greater Dallas area. And then I would work while he was doing his internship and then we'd figure out how I was going to make my big break into broadcast journalism later. And my mom had a, a client, I think, of, of like one of her nail clients was the head of HR for Metrocell Cellular and said she'd hire me as an intern. And it was an administrative role. I was doing admin work and I was doing coordination of their recognition program. So they had a lot of salespeople and they did sales incentive programs and sales incentive trips. I did that. And after two months, they offered me a full-time position And I, I think that they offered me like, I don't know, it's probably like $23,000 a year or $25,000 a year. And I remember talking to Brian about it and said, well, I can't pass this up. What if no one ever offers me that much money again? <laughs> <laughs> so what did he that, say? He was like, well, yeah, true. I mean, <laughs> what are you going to do? And so on that basis, we made the decision based on that lucrative offer that I would stay in Dallas and he would go back to finish. He was doing his master's in accounting and he would go back down to Austin and, and we would just set up two separate houses and live apart for a couple of years while he finished up. So I started a full-time job there here again thinking well once he finishes and we know where he's going to be then I can for real start my career and I don't know I mean I it just I was in the HR department I didn't know anything about HR but I sort of took to it you know like a little fishy and nosed myself into business 
outside of what I was supposed to do. Once I figured out my job, I was kind of like a little bored and um, got roped into taking notes in some employee relations cases. And I was like, well, this is interesting. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like a little saucy. Um, and then, you know, started just stretching my legs a bit and, and raising my hand and asking if I could do more and asking if I could do more and then doing what they gave me and then asking if I could do more. And you pretty quickly became like a junior HR generalist kind of person. And that's how I got into HR. And you stayed in HR. So yeah. how, how did you then get to Yum Brands? Yeah, so that company, Metrocell Cellular, was bought by uh, McCall Cellular that was then bought by AT&T that became AT&T Wireless. So without doing anything, I then worked for AT&T Wireless, still in Dallas, and continued to get promoted. And at one point, Brian was working for Arthur Anderson in, in Dallas, and every year they did this performance appraisal thing and you had to give your preferences like would you be willing to relocate was always the question and every year we would talk about it and we'd say no 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 all of our families here you know better that we stay here and I don't know why but for one reason or another this one particular year we said well why wouldn't we relocate and I ticked yes on the box and moved um, very shortly after that to Seattle I got promoted in fact, I was pregnant with my second child, and I got permission from the doctor when I was eight months pregnant to fly from Dallas to Seattle to interview for this job. Wow. I came back, and you know the process is unfolding, and they're evaluating and deciding if I'm going to get the job. And I remember I got a call on a Monday. They offered me the job on the Monday. We put our house in Dallas on the market on Tuesday. I gave birth Wednesday, and the house sold immediately. And, you know, in, in the States, you've got like 10 or 12 weeks of leave. And so I moved during my maternity leave with my daughter, Avery. We moved to Seattle. First people who've ever left, like in our family, ever left the state, which was traumatic for some members of our family. And we moved and I took the job as the head of HR for the wireless data and the B2B sales divisions for AT&T Wireless. And then fast forward, that was in 2003. And in 2004, AT&T was sold to Singular Wireless. And my choice was move to Atlanta and join Singular or leave the company. And I got a call. Actually, it was the my head of HR at AT&T Wireless pulled me aside. She had already decided she wasn't going to Singular. And she said, look, consider all your options, but you've spent your whole career here. It might be interesting for you to try your hand outside of this company where you know how to do everything. And she said, I used to work with some guys at PepsiCo. They're at Yum Brands now. It's a really cool company. I think you should talk to them. And I didn't know what Yum Brands was. I had to look that up. <laughs> and I remember I, I got an interview and I remember telling Brian, I said, you know, I don't think I want to work for a fast food company. And I definitely don't want to live in Kentucky. <laughs> and I ended up doing both of those things. And it was the best decision I've ever made in my career. And I joined Yum! in April of 2005. 
as the head of HR for Long John Silver's and A&W restaurants. Wow. Very small brands that are no longer with Yum. Yeah, I mean, obviously today Yum has 45,000 restaurants across the entire world. It owns Taco Bell, Pizza Hut and KFC. And I think the market cap is is like $30 billion. Um, But I'd love to hear how the company looked like when you joined. I mean, to be fair, I joined an already scaled business. I mean, honestly, it was a scaled business when it spun out of PepsiCo in 1997. But when I joined, Yum was 34,000 restaurants or so. Now you're right. It's, it's probably when I left in 2017, I think it was 45,000. And I think that they've hit 50,000 now. When I joined, it was in 100 countries. And now it's probably close to 200 or so. It was 140 odd when I left. And, you know, when I joined the worldwide system employees was below a million. And now I think it's, it's probably close to 1.5. It was 1.3 when I was in the, in the global role, um, the international business. And it's, it's amazing. You know, this is uh, KFC alone, you know, opens, well, Yum opens a restaurant probably every three hours around the world which is just mind boggling. It's completely and beyond imagination. Yeah. It's so hard to imagine. And, you know, at the time that I joined, they were dominantly a U.S. business and they were dominantly equity. So the company owned. So I think it was probably, you know, 60% franchised at that point. And now it's, I bet it's, it's nearly 100%. It's probably 99% franchise. So that was a huge shift in the recruitment of franchise partners and the scaling of franchise partners to be able to take on those restaurants from us was a big part of the scaling journey that I was on. And the shift from a U.S. focused business to international. So, you know, I think when I joined, it was probably... 20 or 30% international, and now it's 60, 70% international. And the shift from big box units, you know, big display piece, dine-in restaurants to small format delivery takeaway. You know, so yes, they've grown. During the time that I was there, they absolutely continued trucking along in terms of adding several thousand restaurants per year. But what was happening inside that to facilitate is it was fascinating. It was such an amazing journey. What were some of the key learnings? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I learned so much uh, from my time there. I feel like it was it was a doctoral degree. It wasn't even a master's degree. I think one of the big things from a business standpoint was how to succeed despite your scale. And a big part of the challenge, whatever size your business is at, once you've got some scale, whatever it is, you're suddenly in the mode of managing today and tomorrow Mm -hmm. at the same time. And that is hard. That's hard. And particularly in the early days, I think for businesses, and this is outside of Yum, before you have the resources to be able to structure yourself in areas where it really matters, where you need the focus on today and the focus on tomorrow, people have to do both hour to hour. And that's incredibly challenging. So some of the things I learned, really keeping your decision making as close to the customer as possible. 
One of the things that Yum! did so well, and one of the reasons why it beat McDonald's in almost every emerging market, McDonald's is a force in developed markets, particularly in Western Europe, but in the emerging markets, Yum! was so good because we put high-powered, really capable leadership on the ground, gave them a framework and targets, and then let them get on with it. They could adapt, they could flex to meet the context locally, and they had autonomy to make decisions. And, you know, when I was in the global role, that was really clear to me and to my peers was that the the power, I hate to use the term power, but the power of decision-making really needed to be with the general managers in the markets. We needed to be a resource, not a power source. Um, So staying close to the customer and having your decision-making as you grow, keeping your decision-making as close to the customer as possible. Adapt and change. You know, never get so, never fall so much in love with how you do what you do. And I think when you've got big established brands, that's so hard. Or when you get a brand that's getting some traction and it's got a cult following, it's so hard to admit that you might need to change and to know when it's safe to change and what's sacred and shouldn't be changed. But you've got to constantly be evaluating that. You've got to make your product great at the end of the day. And one of the things I didn't love about the restaurant business was the fact that it's measured on same store sales growth, amongst other things. But to me, transactions growth was such a better health measure. But, you know, Wall Street likes same store sales, I think, and it seemed as though it was more prized and valued. And so you had to fight against that a bit, particularly when you get big and you're lapping results. And, you know, if your product isn't great, people aren't going to come back and you're going to see that in your transactions. And so it's important that the product be exceptional and you continue improve that. I think you can't be afraid of reinvention. I think if you look at Taco Bell is such a great, great example of that. And I'm not the right person to give you the whole history, but it's worth a study and go back and look at the inflection points. You know, Taco Bell struggled for years. And product innovation, along with really nailing their personality and their tone of voice and having that infuse everything that they do and reinventing their assets and reinventing their advertising and reinventing everything about how they showed up in the market to be the Taco Bell that they needed to be. And then the product of, you know, a Doritos Locos Taco in the U.S. really was so impactful. So yeah, don't be afraid of reinvention. You know, even if you've got an established brand like a Taco Bell, Target is a great case study in the US as well. It used to be such a dodgy retailer and now it's so aspirational. It's so aspirational and they've totally reinvented themselves. And then I think um, keeping a long-term focus, not letting the market, particularly if you're publicly traded, which is hard, it's easier to say than to do. But you gotta you gotta take a Jeff Bezos approach and sort of like put the hand up and do what's right for your business, not what's at the whim of the market. Those are some of the business things I think that I learned. But beyond that, I learned so many things that have shaped me. You know, David. Mm-hmm. David has been so instrumental in you know in my career. I will never forget. 
ever, as long as I live, where I was sitting. Um, I was early in my career at Yum, maybe like 18 months or so. And we were in a people planning succession meeting. And he made the decision that he was going to terminate a leader, very, very senior leader, a very high performing leader, because his behavior was outside of the values of Yum. And that totally changed me. AT&T was a great company, but I never, ever saw them get rid of a bankable performer because of behavior. And what that imprinted on me was this sort of framing of the importance of being patient with results, business results, but being absolutely impatient with behavior and particularly leadership behavior. That was huge. That's such a powerful story. Yeah. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about the culture? Yeah. I mean, I, the culture is such a thing. I mean, and people don't believe it until they experience it, which made recruitment fun, but tough. I always told people when I was recruiting that I'd far rather recruit for Yum and have to sell people that this really is a great place than recruit for Disney and have people coming in expecting there's going to be magic <laughs> every day at the water cooler. Um, you know, the, the recognition culture, which is one of the things that I think is, is, it is known for, is so powerful. It took me a while to adapt to that, and I had to be a little focused on adopting that mindset and understanding the importance of it and the discipline that needs to go around it. But everyone loves to hear their, the sound of their name being spoken in praise. It's universal. It's global. And every leader, every senior leader was expected to have a personal leadership award and was expected to, you know, give that award out. And, and beyond that, even in small ways, it translated to how you gave feedback to people. You know, we had a model for that, that feedback, which was first, here's what I appreciate. And here's how I think you then can be more effective. So really starting with, with the recognition. Another thing I think is so special about Yum in my experience is that they involve my whole family from the time I was recruited. You know, my recruitment interview, when they flew me to Kentucky, they flew my husband as well. Wow. They had planned a whole, you know, his whole agenda was planned. They were wooing him. They had gifts sent to my children. <laughs> they were wooing wow. my children. My husband and my children were welcome to travel with me. You know, I think this was also new for me was leaders having you in their home and having you connected to their family and, and all of that intermingling as opposed to this real separation of, of home and work. It was really powerful. And when it was time for me to decide I was leaving the company, it was a whole family discussion because my husband has dear friends as a result of working for Yum. You know, my kids loved going up there in the summer and they liked the fact that they were associated with KFC Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. You know, it was a whole family discussion. And I think that's really special. I think that that does something else in terms of stickiness and attaching your heart to a place, not just your head. Very, very powerful point. And I mean, you got promoted a lot and then you became chief um, people officer of KFC. What was the number one kind of personal um, scaling challenge you had to overcome? 
the diversity of the global aspect of that role definitely challenged me and in the best possible way. I think there was the best way I could describe it is every other week I was getting off of a plane in another country and I had to sort of take all of the years of experience and what I thought I knew about how you do HR and people really well. And I had to almost just stick that on a metaphorical shelf and then take in what was in front of me, what I was seeing, really just be present with what was happening in that market and with the teams and the individuals, and then start pulling little bits of my experience to overlay because context matters. And, you know, some of the things that I thought were absolutes are not necessarily absolutes. And some of the things that I, that I saw in regions around the world that are common employment practices would potentially be odd or unusual to my American sensibility, but that didn't mean that that wasn't the way that it should be operating. And for me to be effective at my role, I had to really open up, you know, and I had to develop this ability to tap into the experience I had, but not be obsessed with it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. Um, very powerful point. And let's talk briefly about other people. How do you spot amazing talent? You know, what makes them leaders? What one to three, I don't know, you know, traits do you think foreshadow success in people? Yeah. Well, I, I would caveat this with, I do think that I'm very good in the talent space. I think that is one of my strengths, but I've never seen anyone who's a, an objective recruiter or interviewer. And I think for years I thought I was, I thought I had the science around this, but really it's all based on your own experience that you're bringing into that moment. And so I would caveat this to say that if I take all of my different iterations as a leader and what I looked for in a leader, this is kind of the things that I always come back to. I really look for someone who is balanced in terms of being interested and interesting. And interested, I, I know that because when I'm with you, I have a sense that there's nowhere else that you could possibly want to be or that there's nothing else that you need to do. I have a sense that you really want something from me, that you really want to help me succeed and see me succeed and support my success. Interesting is, you know, someone who is always bringing new insights and information. They're there's a sense that they're going someplace exciting and you want to hit your wagon mm -hmm. to that, you know? And I think that most of the time we each have a dominant foot. We either lead with sort of that interesting sort of, I'm going someplace, you want to come along, it's going to be fun and exciting and we're going to learn a lot. Or I'm first and foremost about you and, and your growth in this journey. And I mean, you could describe that maybe as more people focused, more task focused, but I think I really look for someone who is actively honing a balance between those two, who has an awareness of what their front foot is, what's going to come out first, and knows how to pull out that other side, has created some routines and some habits and some disciplines to balance themselves out. And I think that self-awareness is probably 
the key that unlocks that and other things. But self-awareness would probably be the second thing is someone who can sit very comfortably with what they're good at and what they're not naturally good at. And probably the double click on that is that the things that they're not naturally good at, they don't freak out about it. They put coping mechanisms in place to keep it from derailing them. A third thing, and and this, I guess, is a little bit different, but I really like to see a leader who can take any team that's already existing and adopt them and love them and develop them and make them great. It's not so hard if you're starting from scratch or if you get to turn a whole team over. I mean, that's challenging, obviously. But if you can then get to pick your whole squad and you do well with it, that's interesting. But what's really impressive to me is when you can do that well, but I can also drop you with any team anywhere and they're going to be motivated. They're going to be excited to work for you and you can achieve as a group. And then I think someone who's always evolving, not just seeing their, their strengths and weaknesses, but someone who's constantly learning and growing and evolving. You know, a lot of people get stuck in a rut of what got them to the top job, which is a lot of excellent doing of work and doing of leadership. But when you get to the senior jobs, it's more of a being. And that's a difficult transition for people to make. And then I think beyond that, it, it becomes the context of the, the company and the culture. You know, at Yum was a very, very collaborative culture. And so, you know, I was looking for someone quite often, very specifically, who, who if they had been involved in sports, for example, at a young age, at a very competitive level, I preferred that it was a team sport. Uh, because they learned how to be successful in the context of being dependent upon other people. And that's not a good or a bad. It's just that suited yum and how we operated. It was going to be an easier journey for them. So there are other things that I think you have to overlay to some of those core leadership principles, depending on the context. Very powerful. Yeah. And can you share some of the biggest failures you've seen and what you learned? I really have reflected on this a lot in terms of, I don't even know how many people I've, I've hired or brought into roles, but I couldn't identify a single one who failed because technically they weren't good. And I think that's really interesting because when people come into roles, they're very worried about being good enough and about accomplishing the task really well and about getting the results. That's what they, they're, they're quite often fretting about. But where people fall down is, is they don't build the connection. So they don't really maximize their onboarding. They're in a rush to get to the doing and to the accomplishing. And they don't build the relationships. They don't learn how things are done in that particular place. And they don't learn how their leadership needs to show up in that moment. And I think nine times out of 10, where leaders fail is because they don't have that awareness, followed quickly by an overuse of their strengths. So strengths and overdrive. Yeah, yeah, which is so painful, right? Because it's, it is, and everyone will tell you that's a great part of you, but when you overuse it, you, you implode. 
Yeah, and I love your point on self-awareness. That seems to be one of the biggest kind of um, key lessons you've learned on that journey. Yeah. Really fascinating. Thank you. Now, you and your husband had um, two kids whilst both working, you know, fairly full on all the time. How have you managed that? I think first and foremost, I have the right partner. And I, I get asked this question a lot. And the first thing I will say always is if you are going to have a family with someone else, if you're going to have a partner in that, choose that partner very well. Um, that's at least 50%. You know, if you've got someone who is excited about your success and growth and committed to helping you achieve that and committed to helping you um, create the life outside of work that you want, then that's huge. It's absolutely huge. So I think finding the right partner, if you're going to have a partner, um, is, is important. Having clarity on the big rocks in every aspect of your life, you know, so what's most important, you know, if you want to have children and you want to have a big career and you want to have, for example, a partnership or a marriage that is fulfilling and you want to have friends, what are the most important things in each one of those areas? Everything can't be important. And I think that that's where, where we fall down then how do you blend those things together? I really don't like the word balance because I've never experienced any of this ever being in balance. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. That it's, point really resonates. Yeah, it's like a pendulum and it's always tilted, you know, one way and, and that's okay. It's about blending them together. And if you get a little bit out of kilter, then you just take it back a little bit, you know, and, and rebalance, reblend the items together. But I think that it only works if you really know what's most important, you know, and that then comes with letting go of control of some things. So I had to let go of very early on the fact that I was not going to have control over what my kids ate, you know, and that seems like a funny thing. But I think as, as a mama, you want to do all those things right. And you feel like, you know, you create stories in your mind. And it's not that these aren't important, right? But you can't control all of the things. And you have to entrust and trust that other people who you carefully will engage to help you on this journey are going to make the best choices that they can. And then unless that is a big rock, then you don't, don't fuss about it. You let it go. Which I guess brings me to outsourcing. And, you know, at every stage no matter what you can afford, get the help that you can afford to get. Mm. And no shame in getting help at all. I think one of the things for me that's probably been important and foundational is I made the decision maybe to do things upside down, I guess, a little bit. That I, my plan was to work hard while my kids were little bitty and to get myself to a position where I could step back and be more present, if not be at home, when they were teenagers. So I felt like as an infant, it was pretty straightforward what they needed. <laughs> you know, they needed food, they needed to sleep, they needed to change. And a lot of really talented people could execute that really well, could do that really well. But when they're teenagers, it's just a whole other game. And, you know, sometimes it takes a mom or dad to see that something's a little off and to be present. 
And I guess, you know, at the end of the day with the other thing I would say is that you have to prepare yourself mentally and emotionally for sacrifice. And, and important for people to know that making a different decision, if I had made a decision to, to be a at-home working mom, you know, to be full-time working as a mother, that would come with sacrifices as well. There's not a path that doesn't come without sacrifice. That's a really, really good point. Um, I need to reflect on that. And you've spent, what, like 12 years at YUM? Yeah, yeah. And then you left, and now you're starting your own business, 35,000. So I'd love to hear your elevator pitch and what got you to do so. Yeah, 35,000 is the brand and the community that I always wanted. When I was a woman in business traveling, predominantly traveling with men who I love, who are amazing, but had different needs than I did on the road. There just wasn't a real community. I didn't have access to other women who were trying to grow their careers and had this travel aspect um, to their lives. And I was constantly seeking out hacks, you know, whether that was my packing or whether it was the skincare or whether it was how to juggle kids' schedules and routines when I was on the road and my husband had meetings and I struggled to find that community. And so I think at the heart of it, it's about creating, bringing forward the voices of women who are in these corporate roles, um, but actually in any career role, who are trying to juggle all of the things and helping each other um, and sharing the hacks that, that make it all work a little bit more beautifully. Ultimately, the aspiration is that we'll become a product brand and that we are actually actively now working on products that I'm hoping our first launch will be in 2021 of products that are designed by women on the go, for women on the go, with their needs in mind, and done in a really beautiful, elevating, aspirational way. And if we do all of this right, I have this maybe Pollyanna-esque hope that we'll make taking some of these big jobs that require travel and demands and all of those things look a little more appealing and ultimately attract more women into the C-suite. And in addition to that, you've also joined Augusto board. Why? Well, <laughs> I connected with you, first of all, and I just felt like every time you and I had a conversation, I left challenged and excited and motivated. And I felt like from the very beginning, we had such a, we were very like-minded in terms of what we wanted it to feel like mm -hmm. to work for a company. And, and you're one of the few leaders who I remember interacting with, aside from David, that, that spent a lot of time thinking about what it feels like, not just what we're doing, but what does it feel like to be here and what happens in people's lives more broadly because they're part of this experience. And you're such a people-focused business, and that's so at the heart of what I'm about. And I do believe in capitalism, and I do believe that businesses can and should be the change in our communities and our societies. And, you know, companies like Gusto are so important because of the heart that you have for developing and growing people. You're going to hire people 
you know, it'll be their first corporate jobs or some of them will have worked at some jobs that have had very poor experiences and you're going to reframe for them mm-hmm. what that should be. And then you're going to become an academy and leaders are going to come out of Gusto and go take that heart, that leading with heart into other companies. And the ripple effects of that are huge. Also, I love the Gusto food and I've used Gusto for years as a mom. I mean, it's been a huge part of my hacks of making it all work. And long before I knew you, we've had Gusto in our home and it's been such a wonderful, the product is exceptional. The product's exceptional. And you know that I've tried every single meal service. I've been Mm -hmm. through all of them. And, you know, we come back to Gusto because of the food is delicious. It's beautifully executed. It's fun. It's easy. So, yeah, I'm excited. I, I just see heaps of potential ahead for Gusto. And I, I pinch myself that I get to be part of it. I'm so excited you joined the board, Misty. It's a huge, huge pleasure to have you on this journey. Thanks so much. I think we've got tons of fantastic material. This is really amazing. No, this was fantastic for me and a huge, huge pleasure just hearing your story, you know, and I heard bits of your story before, but this gives me such a better picture of, you know, who Misty is and what makes her tick. I personally can't wait to listen to it again, to be honest. I'm the biggest consumer of podcasts and everything you're doing with this is so up my alley. Thank you so much. Hugely appreciated, Misty. Awesome. Thanks, Timo. Thanks, Timo.